O-O-O, and welcome to the show. Welcome to The Way It Is, official Bobby Galinsky podcast, Sweet 16, 16th episode, and it's going to be a sweet one. It's Friday. It's always Friday. Every time you hear me, it's Friday, the 20th, no, actually, the 10th of July, 2020, and we're in the bunker in the prison, the Robin Island prison, the Mays prison, Attica, Alcatraz of Australia. And why am I in a prison? Because the Unterschar Fuhrer, who is now the Fuhrer Premier Daniel Andrews of Victoria, has locked down the entire state again. No, 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 for six no, no, weeks. No, no. Now I said this would no. never happen again. We would never go through it again. And I'm just kind of mulling this. So I've made no decision whatsoever as to advice or dissent. I am erring on the side of caution this one time. But I can tell you right now, never again. If after this six weeks, which I'm going to do whatever I want within the confines of what's safe and what's good for my wife and I and family and stuff like that. And we were socially distancing anyway. You can tell I'm getting stuck into this right away. Um, but if we comply with this, if this all happens well and everything goes well, great. We'll still have him lynched. But, um, and I mean that metaphysically, although in a fantasy it's real for me. But if this all passes and we all go outside again, and it all returns, basically game over. Um, you know what? Do whatever you want. Let the old people die. Let the few young people die. And uh, you got to get on with it. The earth can't stop. Um, in essence, before we go into the regular part of the show, for those who are overseas, everything was going swimmingly here in Victoria. Swimmingly. We had like zero deaths. A couple old people. Who cares? You know. Unless it's your mom or dad, in which case, well, you know, they're 90. They've had a good life. But then we had a Black Lives Matter, like anything like that even matters here. And you know what? Let's get down to it. It was a horrific murder of George Floyd. The policemen were arrested. They're most likely going to serve many years for murder and stuff like that. We'll see what happens there. But it has nothing to do with what's going on over here. It has nothing to do with black lives. It's all about Marxist insane power grabs, which we'll get into later in the show. And of course, 10,000 people marching in the street in the middle of the pandemic and did the premier say anything? No, because he was scared and gutless. So all the people that marched in it, and I think you were foolish, and I've said it to you, I think it was a very foolish move on your part. I'm sorry. Bad move. You should have rethought it. I would say it to your face. It doesn't change how I feel about you. Not only did that put everybody at risk, but more importantly, the zillion of people that sat at home doing the right thing just thought, well, you know, fuck it. If there's 10,000 idiots out there in the street, I'll go have 20 people at my picnic. I'll go over to, you know, Grandma Benechko's Lebanese halal West Palestinian West Bank, you know, desert community get together. And um, we'll have a nice, nice big party. And uh, we'll hug each other and kiss and do everything. And of course, well, now, 
Now we've got lots of cases, not so many cases. There's been like 55,000 deaths in England, and you know they just opened the pubs. We've had like 200 deaths nationwide, and everything's closed down. So anyway, my thing was get that off my chest right away. I am disgusted, disgusted the way it's been handled. And all the people that were in quarantine, mind you, were, were guarded by people with zero training that had sex with some of the quarantine people and just let them out for cigarettes and takeaway food and stuff like that. So it's been an absolute clusterfuck. There we go. That's my three F-bombs all in the first two minutes. So we are at Sweet 16 and uh, we are at mid-July. We had my birthday, which was epic. We had my late son Chris's birthday, his first birthday up in heaven, which was very sad because it was weird not to call him. Very weird not to be able to call him. And um, I'll get over that one day. I'm not sure when. But here we are. Here we are. And it's a fully loaded show. And it's going to be a beautiful show. Going to be an absolutely beautiful, beautiful show. Like beautiful coal. Uh, because we'll be talking about soundtracks. Movie soundtracks, as you know by the 16th episode here, unless you're a new listener, I love the movies. No, I don't love Hollywood anymore so much, nor many of the denizens of Hollywood, but I play the man, not the ball, and I love movies. And the most important part of movies that stays with you is often the soundtrack. Really, the only thing I listen to in my car is movie soundtracks when I'm driving by myself. Um, and they are so evocative of the amazing imagery that just comes flying through your head as you remember a film that you saw, maybe with your first love, maybe with a lost love, um, maybe with your children, you know, an animated film, or when you were a child yourself, the, the music just anchors it in. It's, it's a time machine. And we lost one of the all-time, all-time greats of cinema music, Ennio Morricone, who died this week at age 91. And that really meant a lot to me because um, the films that he scored, he scored over 500 films, which is absolutely, ridiculously insane. Uh, many films that you you would have seen. Well, first of all, going back to the Sergioni, Sergio Leone spaghetti westerns, although he hated being tagged with that. that. That was only such a small part of his life, he, he used to say. And he didn't like the term spaghetti western. But um, he did The Mission and Days of Heaven. Days of Heaven, the most beautiful film ever made. Ever made. There is no more beautiful film ever made. If you can get a, a Criterion Blu-ray 3D mega, you know, super HD copy of that film and sit down and watch it, it's just absolutely staggering, absolutely staggering. If you're not familiar with Days of Heaven, it was a 1978 romantic period drama, and that was directed by Terrence Malick, Terrence Malick, one of my all-time faves, and that starred the young Richard Gere, the young Brooke Adams, the late Sam Shepard, a huge loss, and Linda Mance, and that was set back in 1916, and it tells the story of Bill and Abby, who were lovers who masqueraded as brother and sister and traveled to the Texas Panhandle to harvest crops for a wealthy farmer who was played by Sam Shepard. And Bill encouraged Abby, 
played by Brooke, which is Richard Gere encouraged Brooke Adams to claim the fortune of the dying farmer by tricking him to a false marriage. It's such a story of loss and regret and mistakes and honor, but really love, love through trickery and in pure love. And I saw it when I was in my mid-20s for the first time, and I was really starting out my career, and so I was looking at every kind of film possible and film noir and period pieces and everything, and, and Terry Malick seemed to embody that amazing Hollywood director that was all about the end piece and however long it took to get to there and a certain amount of ambiguity of that hierarchy of, of morals and ethics that something that might be so important to you might be less important to someone else or, or vice versa and I saw the film six or seven times in the cinema I was so overwhelmed so overwhelmed and always ended up just in pieces at the end of it it's it's astonishing if you care about film you have to see that film and uh you better have a great tv or a great home theater to really appreciate it uh, because between the music as you're hearing in the background and the cinematography from nestor almondros um, it takes you places that no other film has ever taken taken me really one of the best and we'll be talking about those soundtracks today um kind of go right into my my top 10 my top 10 but let's before we do that let's i know it's the 10th bobby it's the 10th of july what happened on the 10th of july well a lot happened on the 10th of july things always happen when the sun is in cancer and boy is there a lot of history? Going back to 1778, the American Revolution, Louis XVI of France, sitting over there, well-dressed on the throne, declared war on the kingdom of Great Britain. Right in the middle of all of this. And in 1940, hundreds of years later, the Battle of Britain began. Britain's always involved in stuff like this as Nazi forces attacked shipping convoys in the English Channel. And there was a couple of good films made about that. 1985, well, back to France again. French foreign intelligence agents blew up the Greenpeace boat, the Rainbow Warrior, in Auckland Harbor in New Zealand to prevent it from interfering with French nuclear tests in the South Pacific. And a Dutch photographer named Fernando Pereira was killed. Now, got a lot of feelings about that in 1985. That was before I moved over to this side of the world. First of all, I had no idea where New Zealand was, so I thought if the French want to conduct nuclear tests, way the fuck on the other side of the world. Whoopsie, I lied. F-bomb. You know, near New Zealand, where there's 11 people, who cares? And I was kind of a, kind of a KG middle of the road, non-pacifist, not war hawk. So the fact that Greenpeace was out there, I thought, oh yeah, protecting the environment's nice. Um, but confronting people with the Rainbow Warrior, no. That was probably not a good idea. And as the years have gone on, um, Greenpeace has, I think, kind of lost their minds a bit, a little uh, past environment and just a bit too much uh, too much social justice. But that's okay. Let them, uh, you got to have a bit of balance. And then, of course, on this day in history, everyone remembers 1991, because that's when Boris Yeltsin was sworn in as the first 
elected, italics, elected president of the Russian Federation. And I'm, I'm sure he was contacting Donald Trump back then because, as you know, the Mueller probe, you know, proved to those with an extra chromosome that uh, the Russians control the United States presidency. No. N-O. Then, let's get a bit more recent and a bit more prescient. In 2012, on this day, the American Episcopal Church becomes the first to approve a right for blessing gay marriage, which was nice. When we had the uh, plebiscite down there, now here's a word for you, plebiscite, um, to allow gay marriage, I voted for that. But I did say, you know what, I'm all for equality. I'm all for equality. We are all, we are all born equal. We are equal as humans. We not, might not be equal on the hierarchy of value in the commercial marketplace. That's a whole other podcast that's coming up, episode 235. But uh, we are all equal. And it's great to be in love. But I did say, and I was right, because there's always an agenda that once gay marriage was approved, that it wouldn't just be equal, that all the activists in the LGBTQ RSZ2 to the power squared community would start going mental and start cancel culturing everyone. And right down to yesterday when Halle Berry withdrew from a film about a transgender person that she was playing, actress, actors and actresses portray people, you morons. She withdrew because of the pressure from the transgender community which obviously is so important to the world, that uh, it has to be a transgender person to play a transgender person. You know what? Stop this shit right now. Just stop it. Stop all this stupid, you know, it has to be a black to be a black. It has to be a Jew to be a Jew. It has to be, you know, a man with a flipper on his head to play, play flipper. <coughs> Luke, bud, look out. Um, you know, oh, just stop it. Okay, please. And um, on this day, in July 10th, 2018, Drake, I do like Drake, surpassed the Beatles' record of most singles in Billboard's Hot 100 with seven against their five from his album Scorpion. Now, the good thing about that is I do like Drake. The bad thing about that is it's not about records anymore, people going buying records. It's about, you know, nine-year-old girls on TikTok, you know, with 11 phones downloading things. So it's not like buying the records. So to me, it doesn't count. It just doesn't count. It's, it's, it's not, you know, equal to equal. It's not apples to apples. So anyway, I could go on that forever. I sound like the angry old man barking at the mood, but it's music. It's today's music. You were just like that with the Beatles versus Elvis Presley and Chubby Checker and, you know, Perry Como and stuff like that. No millennial idiot. Look in the mirror. Records cost anywhere from four to $20. It costs zero cents to download a song when you're a kid and you know how to do it. So Drake's bazillion records is not equal in cost expenditure to the five most singles that the Beatles had as far as capital outlay. We'll leave it there. Sport. Got to have something for everybody. And you know what? With the lockdown, there hasn't been much sport. 
1971, before we built the wall in the U.S., before we built the wall, there was a Mexican that sneaked over with a golf club. His name was Lee Trevino. And Lee Trevino won the 100th British Open men's golf at Royal Birkdale. And he was the first of his consecutive Open championships, a stroke ahead of Lu Leong Huan of Taiwan, who we've never heard from again. Um, probably got COVID, Wu flu. But uh, Lee Trevino was um, the 1970s kind of Mexicans, the ones that we didn't have to build the wall for. Now, who got divorced on this day? And how does it tie in with the previous episode? Well, in 1975, Cher, or Sure, but I think it's Cher, if I could turn back time. Well, if you could, you probably would have had less plastic surgery and done a little more Pilates so that you could walk, as we saw in Mamma Mia 2, where you were carried on stage. In 1975, Cher filed for divorce from Greg Allman 10 days after their marriage, and shortly afterwards, Greg Allman died. And that film that I talked about two episodes ago, The Midnight Rider, check that out. That's a very, very powerful episode. Now, birthdays. Besides my birthday last week, on the 8th of July in 1838, what about the name, what about the name Ferdinand Adolf August Heinrich Graf von Zeppelin? Well, you mentioned the name Zeppelin, and many people think of immediately of either the airships that bore the aircraft pioneer's name or of the amazing rock group Led Zeppelin. But there was more to Ferdinand Adolf August Heinrich Graf von Zeppelin than that, a lot more. In fact, he was born in Germany on this day, and that was quite a mouthful. But he's the one that, you know, made all kinds of inventions, but is most notably, notably remembered for, after his death, that on the 6th of May, 1937, in Lakehurst, New Jersey, sorry, Lakehurst, New York, is there a difference? Probably not. 1937, the Hindenburg, which was a Zeppelin, a blimp, that regrettably was carrying very flammable hydrogen instead of helium because there was an embargo on helium to the Germans, hit a tower and the mass exploded and all 200 people fell to earth. Screaming because they were all on fire, killing almost 40 of them. Most notably, radio announcer Herb Morrison is noted for screaming, Oh, the humanity! Oh, the humanity! on radio as he recorded it all across the United States. That's worth looking up on YouTube because it's quite amazing. Now, that kind of brings us up to date in history. But I don't want to forget that. Those of you in America, and originally I am from America, as you know, Sioux City, Iowa, celebrated the 4th of July this last week, Independence Day, when we kicked the British ass, something that I won't be doing here since my wife is British. I get my ass kicked once in a while, but, you know, that's all right. Happy wife, happy life. But we kicked the British ass in 1776 on a Thursday at about 2 p.m. And uh, we got independence. That's why it's Independence Day. And that was a riveting speech from President Trump 
at Mount Rushmore. Even if you don't like the president, I hope you love that speech. But if you're from the New York Times or the Washington Post, you say it was divisive. Why was it divisive? Because he called out people who were destroying statues, burning churches, rioting in the streets, and looting. Oh my God, that part of America, can't we be inclusive? Can't we all just get along? What is divisive about calling out people that don't honor the Constitution, that don't understand the God-given rights of peaceful assembly, and that don't respect the flag and don't respect the United States? Yes, they should go to jail for destruction. And I am open. This will surprise you. Sit down. Yes, sit down. I am open, open, malleable. I'm a malleable kind of guy to discussion about statues and monuments to people that might be, I wouldn't say controversial, but might be challenging to some people. So in other words, if there's a statue that was of a Confederate hero that really didn't do a lot of other good things other than be a Confederate war hero, that's the Confederacy of the uh, Civil War in the United States, the war between the states, the North and the South, that was the South, they lost. Um, there's still a lot of people in the South that don't realize the war ended. And I do love the South. I lived in Atlanta for a while. I lived in Florida, which really isn't a Southern state. It's like New York with more Jews and more tans, but without, you know, you know, moronic governors and mayors and stuff like that. Um, but if you've got a Confederate statue, let's say, or any kind of statue, and the guy was an evil slave trader, kind of like, you know, Django Unchained, and had no really redeeming characteristics, I'd say, okay, take that statue out of the town square, because, you know, God forbid somebody's grandfather was, great-grandfather, whatever, was beaten, killed, whipped, lynched, whatever, by that guy. You can't have that. But don't destroy it. Maybe put it in a museum somewhere. It is part of history. You don't erase history. This isn't Pol Pot going back to year zero in, you know, Cambodia. It's history, okay? You don't pull it down. You don't destroy it. However, presidents are not up for discussion, okay? And Mount Rushmore is not up for discussion. So if you've got a problem with Mount Rushmore, get the fuck out of America and move somewhere that you love because you don't love America. Because Mount Rushmore is an homage to four of our greatest presidents, okay? It's not up for discussion. It's not up for any kind of negotiation, non-negotiable. As some of you would know, those of you with a brain that went to school and studied and didn't leave school in year nine to live, you know, with your parents in the basement, you know, eating stuffed muffins and, um, you know, just downloading, you know, Teletubbies. Mount Rushmore has George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln. It was built between the years of 1927 and 1941 by Gutsum Borgett and his son, Lincoln Borgett. Now, his son, Lincoln, whoa, was named after Abraham Lincoln, who was Goodson's favorite president. And it is a hallmark, a bastion, a monument to freedom, intelligence, and democracy. And it's not going to go away 
Okay? Thank you. Whew. How hard was that? How hard was that? Okay, so that covered history. That covered 4th of July. Oh, and those of you that went out the 4th of July and 88, 6,002 billion of you got together at the beach and I think everything's locked down again. Well done. Don't know how that's going to work out. Really don't know. We don't know. The one thing that I do know is, and I think it's not up for discussion, is the cost of this has to be borne by communist China. Let's not forget Mao Zedong, who killed 45 million Chinese during, you know, the Great Leap Forward. Um, you know, eight times what Hitler killed, although Hitler specialized in Jews. He did, you know, he did focus. Got to give him that. And uh, But uh, Mao Zedong just kind of went, let's just kill everybody. So the communist Chinese are known for this, and they are coming for us. They are coming for us. They don't care. Take a look at Hong Kong. And, and I must admit to being very grateful. Uh, I am here in Melbourne, in Australia, which I absolutely adore. And yeah, I got the shits with the premier, but you know, at the end of the day, he'll go. And he's not an all bad human being. He's just, um, I don't like him. I just don't like him. But I'm sure, uh, you know, he's got kids and a family. And um, he was born in July. He was born 6th of July, so he's a cancer. So he's got one redeeming characteristic. But... Uh, Communist China does not. And so I think we either get them to pay several trillion dollars to the U.S., the U.K., Canada, but not Justin Trudeau, um, Italy, Germany, all the countries, the free countries that have suffered from this and been annihilated. they got plenty of gold. They can cash it in and pay it. Or we collectively just nuke them, drop nuclear weapons. What's, what's anybody going to do? Oh, we might get a warning letter from Iran or Iraq. You know, Putin might send a text. Don't do that. No, it's time to take them out. Pay up or we take you out. Pay up or we take you out. That's a bumper sticker. You probably couldn't put it on your car in Hong Kong, but um, I think it's uh, I think it's got a ring to it. I think it's got a ring to it. Now, we promised to get back to our music. And soundtracks. I kind of made a list of my 10 favorite soundtracks. Now, there are hundreds of soundtracks that I love, probably thousands. But if I had to distill my 10 favorite soundtracks, I just wanted to go over them kind of quickly from, in no particular order either, because you know you get the six or seven, you think, oh, that should be number three or number four. But soundtracks that I listen to constantly in the car. Um, from the year 2000, High Fidelity. Now, I don't really enjoy Jack Black as an actor, but this is one film I enjoyed him in. And the High Fidelity soundtrack, did summarize the the mindset of the time with uh, a dozen, uh, 15 tracks, I think. And its curation was apparently one of the most difficult tasks in bringing Nick Hornby's 1995 book to the screen, according to Richard Kalin. Now, the 2000 film did succeed in blending old school favorites, The Kinks, Elvis Costello, and The Velvet Underground with some of the decade's most promising newcomers such as smog stereo lab and royal trucks by the way trivial alert trivial alert no yes in 2000 it was bruce springsteen's only acting cameo to date which is quite cool also in 2000 the shining the amazing adaptation that stanley kubrick did of the 
amazing, possibly best or second best book ever by Stephen King before Stephen King lost his mind like Robert De Niro and got TDS stage five. Christoph Penderecki is the primary composer in the film and The Shining is the one, I listen to it constantly in the car, constantly. Let's go back to 1973, American Graffiti. American Graffiti is a hall of mirrors of nostalgia and music guides that experience. I personally think George Lucas's film, which unfolded over one long night at the end of summer in 1962, as high school kids cruised around the streets of Modesto, California with the radio on, they were thinking about their futures and all the great hits, Buddy Holly, Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers, the Beach Boys, Chuck Berry, were presented by an amazing legendary disc jockey, Wolfman Jack. That was a real guy, millennials, a real guy who was hosting the show. Most of those songs dated from the mid to late 50s. Um, so by 1962, for the characters of the film, they're already carrying the ache of time gone by. Now, this longing is echoed and amplified by George Lucas, the director, in one of his most amazing films, other than the first three and no more, Star Wars, who was looking back on his transitional moment a decade later when he and his generation of baby boomers were about to turn 30. Now, American Graffiti's soundtrack, as told by Mark Richardson, itself has a yearning eloquence. The two LP set consists of the songs featured in the film in the order they appear, so it retains Wolfman's intros and Hepcat patter. So it's not just a collection of songs used or a sampler of timeless hits from the era. It was also a way to relive that experience at home way back in the pre-VCR era, an audio prompt which encouraged your mind to dream the pictures. Mark Richardson absolutely captured that with that review. Now, singles in 1992. In 1992, Seattle's grunge scene met an American economics boom, and the earnestness of the era translated into a soundtrack with an edifice of deepness, but a heart full of jangle. Surprisingly, among tracks from Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, and Soundgarden, it's Dyslexic Heart from The Replacements, Paul Westerberg, that stands up as one of the most memorable on it, and that was detailed by Matthew Schnipper. Actually, it also reminds me of Winona Ryder, who I had a crush on back at the time before she took up shoplifting. Number five of my 10, and not that exact order, 1964, A Hard Day's Night, The Beatles, with songs like I Should Have Known Better and All My Loving. Any, anyone who was a Beatles maniac was just in heaven. I've probably seen that film 50 times. And the Richard Lester black and white film is just absolutely absolutely brilliant. It's like a diamond. 1976, Pretty in Pink. What a soundtrack. Screenwriter John Hughes and director Howard Deutsch. Howard Deutsch, who regrettably was on Howard the Duck. Sorry. Cleverly chose tracks by British post-punk rockers, including Echo and the Bunnymen, Psychedelic Furs, and Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. Then we're going to go back to 1990. Not many of you may have seen this film, one of my favorites and one of my favorite soundtracks, The Sheltering Sky, based on the Paul Bowles 1949 novel. Now, it offers a sweeping metaphor for the human condition, pinning its protagonists against the vastness of the Sahara Desert 
and beneath the unforgiving, all-seeing heavens. Together, yet hopelessly alone, unreachable by others, and unknowing and unknowable even to themselves. You know, Bernardo Bertolucci's film really, despite its failures and a couple of big problems in it, the exoticism, the melodrama, it's so beautiful to look at, but it's the Ryochi Sakamoto score that fits it perfectly. And Sakamoto also did dozens of other amazing films, such as Bertolucci's Little Buddha years later, and also Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, and is one of my absolute favorite geniuses. Actually, kind of the Japanese Ennio Morricone. 1979 brings us Apocalypse Now. What can you say? The sequence with Martin Sheen and The Doors, The End, makes it one of the all-time greats. Then, flipping back to 1968, 2001 A Space Odyssey. From the early thundering repetition of Richard Strauss's Also Sprach Zarathustra and the outer space waltz of Johann Strauss's The Blue Danube to the existential choral nightmare that is Georgi Ligeti's Lux Eterna, those songs are now indelibly bound to Kubrick's scenes of creation and destruction, God and hell, violence and love, just as if they were written for the film, as Grayson Curran detailed in his review. Purple Rain, 1984. What can be said about a film with the beautiful ones when doves cry and Purple Rain in it? Well, epic, that's what you can say. If the surrounding 90 minutes had just been Prince dry-cleaning his scarves, the film would have still been a masterpiece by default. Purple Rain is Prince at his peak, in his prime, at his most audacious. And, can you tell I love Prince? It's Prince at his most sensual, his most open and pleading. Well, one special, honorable special mention. An obscurity, but you're going to have to go with me on this one. Train spotting in 1996. What? Train spotting? Yes. The long shadow of that film cannot dim the adrenaline of watching Danny Boyle's depiction of heroin addiction meet soundtrack compiler Tristan Penna's song selection. Renton's sprinting feet pummeling life back into Iggy Pop's 19-year-old lust for life and Brian Eno's deep blue day transforming a dive down the worst toilet in the world into a transcendental reverie. David Bowie actually declined to lend his music, as did Oasis and dozens of others who, in fact, Oasis thought the film was literally about train enthusiasts, but train spotting benefited from being turned down by most of the major stars. An amazing, amazing film. Now, if you don't have those, get them on Apple Music or whatever, listen to them in the car. If you don't think any of them are great, well... Cancel your Apple subscription. We don't give we don't give refunds here. I just give opinions. You can accept them. You can reject them. Just don't neglect them. Uh, and uh, you know they're just mine. I'm happy now. I got the rant over. I'm I'm looking at the bright side of things. So whew, I feel better. I do love hearing from you at Bobby at apexfeline.com. When you really like something, I love getting compliments. I'm a narcissist and I'm insecure. I love compliments. You know that. I love that. Um, I don't mind the occasional criticism. I've gotten quite a few emails the past few weeks with suggestions. 
suggestions for things? Well, that kind of works two ways. One, if it's a great suggestion, I'll tell you I already thought of it, so piss off, because I don't like people to think that they had a better idea than me. But if it's a stupid idea, then I'll say, well, thanks for the suggestion, and um, I'll consider it for a future show. Because I really never can tell people I don't like the idea. I don't like I don't like to say that to people. It'd be nice enough to write in. I don't mind. However, however, if you think I'm nice, and yes, I am. I know. If you think I'm nice, I can be not nice when I'm truly honest. Some people don't like the truth. And they oh oh he's a bit hard there, you know, especially in politics or whatever. No, it's just my opinion. That's all right. Because ultimately. Politics is just an opinion. However, critique, critique can be subjective, but must be harsh. A couple of weeks ago, I had, let's, let's, let's call him a young man, because he is a younger man, he's younger than me, send me an email and said, I've seen you on Facebook, will you read my script? And he sent me his script attached. Now, there's nothing I hate more than, I shouldn't say hate. I'm not supposed to say hate. My wife says, Bobby, please don't use the word hate. Okay, I won't. There's nothing that is more off-putting and unprofessional to me than someone that drops a script off to me. I don't care whether it's by email or thrown over the fence on my front porch and said, would you read this? Obviously for free. I usually find out their email if they haven't put it on there. Well, they've set up my email, they have. And I send them a note and I attach the most wondrous article ever from the Village Voice by a screenwriter I greatly respect named Josh Olson. And that article in the Village Voice, which isn't even published anymore, it started in 50, 1955 and ended in 2017. It's called I Will Not Read Your Fucking Script. It is the greatest non-rejection letter of all time. Because first of all, the script that this young man sent me was 168 pages. If you've never written a script, let's just put it this way. Unless you're Francis Ford Coppola, John Milius, Steve Zalian, or even Steven Spielberg, who's not a great writer at all and is a very good director. I still wouldn't say he's one of the greatest directors ever, but he's had some great hits, very commercial. If it's over 120 pages, you're in dangerous territory because it's about a page a minute on screen. 120 pages is 120 minutes. That's two hours. If the film is over two hours long, unless it's a Christopher Nolan film or a Spielberg film or something like that, then it's going to cut down on the amount of times you can show it in the cinemas because there's only so many hours of the day in a two-hour film, da 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 And how many people today go, Jesus, that was a long film, you know, Scorsese's The Irishman clocked in at three hours, 15. Now, I loved it. I loved it, every minute of it, but that's Scorsese, and it was on Netflix, and you could pause it and go to the toilet six times like you do when you're my age. But in the cinema, man, you get over two hours, generally irks me, unless it's a masterpiece. So if I'm getting a 160 or 180-page script, three hours plus from someone who's never written before, they obviously have no training. And everyone that gets a computer and looks at one YouTube video, thinks that they can write. So I just want to read the first part 
of Josh Olson's amazing article that he wrote for the Village Voice, which is the greatest F-off letter I've ever written, but most importantly, is the most wondrous advice to young writers on how to be professional. By the way, adult warning, there are quite a few F-bombs in this. These aren't mine. This is from The Village Voice by Josh Olson in September 9th, 2009. Josh Olson, by the way, wrote A History of Violence, which is one of the greatest films of all time, directed by David Cronenberg, and it stars Viggo Mortensen. And Viggo Mortensen said it's one of the best, if not the best film he's ever acted in, and the most perfect film noir that he's ever seen. And if you haven't seen it, the film centers, it's a rather low-budget film for what, for what it was, but it centers around the British Academy Award Writers Guild and Academy Award nominee David Cronenberg's film about the owner of a small-town diner who was thrust into the spotlight after confronting two robbers in self-defense, thus changing his life forever. I will not read your fucking script. That's simple enough, isn't it? I will not read your fucking script. What's not clear about that? There's nothing personal about it. Nothing loaded, nothing complicated. I simply have no interest in reading your fucking screenplay. None whatsoever. If that seems unfair, I'll make you a deal. In return for you not asking me to read your fucking script, I will not ask you to wash my fucking car, or take my fucking picture, or represent me in fucking court, or take out my fucking gallbladder, or whatever the fuck it is that you do for a living. You're a lovely person. Whatever time we've spent together has, I'm sure, been pleasurable for both of us. I quite enjoyed that conversation we once had about structure and theme, and why Sergio Leone is the greatest director who ever lived. Yes, we bonded. And yes, I wish you luck in all your endeavors. And it would throw me no end to hear that you'd sold your screenplay and that it had been made into the best movie since Godfather Part Two. But I will not read your fucking script. At this point, you should walk away, firm in your conviction that I'm a dick. But if you're interested in growing as a human being and recognizing that it is, in fact, you who are the dick in this situation, please read on. Yes, that's right. I called you a dick because you created the situation. You put me in this spot where my only option is to acquiesce to your demands or be the bad guy. That, my friend, is the very definition of a dick move. I was recently cornered by a young man of my barest acquaintance. I doubt we'd have exchanged a hundred words, but he's dating someone I know. And he cornered me in the right place at the right time. And he asked me to read a two-page synopsis for a script he'd been working on the last year. He was submitting the synopsis to some contest or program and wanted to get a professional opinion. Now, I normally have a standard response to people who ask me to read their scripts. And it's the simple truth. I have two piles next to my bed. One is scripts from good friends and the other is manuscripts and books and scripts my agents have sent to me that I have to read for work. Every time I pick up a friend's script, I feel guilty that I'm ignoring work. 
Every time I pick up something from the other pile, I feel guilty that I'm ignoring my friends. If I read yours before any of that, I'd be an awful person. Most people get that. But sometimes you find yourself in a situation where the guilt factor is really high, or someone plays on a relationship or perceived obligation, and it's hard to escape without seeming rude. Then I tell them I'll read it, but if I can put it down after 10 pages, I will. They always go for that because no one ever believes you can put their script down once you start. But hell, this was a two-page synopsis. And there was no time to go into either song or dance, and it was just easier to take it. How long can two pages take? Weeks is the answer. And that is why I will not read your fucking script. It rarely takes more than a page to recognize that you're in the presence of someone who can write. But it only takes a sentence to know you're dealing with someone who can't. By the way, here's a simple way to find out if you're a writer. If you disagree with that statement, you're not a writer. Because you see, writers are also readers. You might want to allow for the fact that this fellow had never written a synopsis before, but that doesn't excuse the inability to form a decent sentence or an utter lack of facility with language and structure. The story described was clearly of great importance to him, but he had done nothing to convey its specifics to an impartial reader. So what I handed, what I was handed was essentially a barely coherent list of events, some connected, some not so much. Characters wander around aimlessly, do things for no reason, vanish, reappear. This would be a typical Australian film. Get arrested for unnamed crimes and make wild, life-altering decisions for no reason. Half a paragraph was devoted to describing the smell and texture of a piece of food. But the climactic central event of the film is glossed over in a sentence. The death of the hero is not even mentioned. One sentence describes a scene he's in. The next describes people showing up at his funeral. I could go on, but I won't. This is the sort of thing that would earn you a D- minus in any freshman comp class, which brings us to an ugly truth about many aspiring screenwriters. They think that screenwriting doesn't actually require the ability to write, just the ability to come up with a cool story that'll make a cool movie. Screenwriting is widely regarded as the easiest way to break into the movie business because it doesn't require any kind of training, skill, or equipment. Everybody can write, right? And because they believe that, they don't regard working screenwriters with any kind of real respect They'll hand you a piece of inept writing without a second thought because you don't have to be a writer to be a screenwriter. So I read the thing, and it hurt, man. It really hurt. Oh, I was dying to find something positive to say, and there was nothing. And the truth is, saying something positive about this thing would be the nastiest, meanest, and most dishonest thing I could do because here's the thing. Not only is it cruel to encourage the hopeless, but you cannot discourage a writer. If someone can talk you out of being a writer, you're not a writer. If I can talk you out of being a writer, I've done you a favor because now you'll be free to pursue your real talent, whatever that may be. And for the record, everyone has one. The lucky ones figure out what that is. The, yucky, the unlucky ones keep on writing shitty screenplays and asking me to read them. Now, to make matters worse, this guy, 
and his girlfriend had begged me to be honest with them. <laughs> he was frustrated by the responses he'd gotten from friends because he felt they were going too easy on him and he wanted real criticism. They never do, of course. What they want is a few tough notes to give the illusion of honesty and then some pats on the head. What they want always is encouragement, even when they shouldn't get any. Do you have any idea how hard it is to tell someone they've spent a year wasting their time? Do you know how much blood and sweat goes into that criticism? Because you want to tell the truth, but you want to make absolutely certain that it comes across honestly and without cruelty. I did more rewrites on that fucking email than I did on my last three studio projects. My first draft was ridiculous. I started with specific notes, and after a while, found I'd written three pages on the first two paragraphs. That wasn't the right approach. So I tossed it, and by the time I was done, I'd come up with something that was relatively brief, to the point, and considerate as hell. The main point I made was that he'd fallen prey to a fallacy that nails a lot of first-timers. He was way more interested in telling his story than in being a writer. It was like buying all the parts to a car and starting to build it before learning the basics of auto mechanics. You learn a lot along the way, I said, but you'll never have a car that runs. I should mention that while I was composing my response, he pulled the ultimate amateur move and sent me an email saying, hey, if you haven't read it yet, don't. I have a new draft. Read this. In other words, the draft I told you was ready for professional input wasn't, actually. So I advised him if he was interested at all in the story, he should find a writer and work with him. If he really wanted to be a writer, start at the beginning and take some classes and start writing and studying seriously. And you know what? Do you know what? I shouldn't have bothered. I shouldn't have bothered because for all the hair I pulled out, for all the weight and seriousness, I gave his request for a real professional critique. His response was a tears. Oh, thanks for your opinion. And the inevitable fallout. A week later, a mutual friend asked me, what's this dick move I hear you pulled on? What's his name? So now this guy and his girlfriend think I'm an asshole. And the truth of the matter is the story really ended the moment he handed me the goddamn synopsis. Because if I would just said no then and there, they'd still think I'm an asshole. The only difference is I wouldn't have to spend all that time trying to communicate thoughtfully and honestly with someone who just wanted a pat on the head. Arr, 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 arr. And more importantly, I wouldn't have to read that god-awful piece of shit. So, you are not owed a read from a professional, even if you think you have an in. And even if you think it's not a huge imposition, it's not your choice to make. This needs to be clear. When you ask a professional for their take on your material... You're not just asking them for an hour or two out of their life. You're asking them to give you, gratis, the acquired knowledge, insight, and skill of years of work. It's no different than asking your friend, the house painter, to paint your living room during his off hours. There's a great story about Pablo Picasso. Some guy told Picasso he'd pay him to draw a picture on a napkin. Picasso whipped out a pen and banged out a sketch, handed it to the guy, and said, one million dollars, please. A million dollars, the guy exclaimed. That took you 30 seconds. Yes, said Picasso. But it took me 50 years to learn how to draw that in 30 seconds.
Like the cad who asks the professional for a free read, the guy simply didn't have enough respect for the artist to think about what he was asking for. If you think it's only about the time, then ask one of your non-writer friends to read it. Hell, they might even enjoy it. They might even look upon you with newfound respect. It could even come to pass that they call up a friend in the movie business and help you sell it, and soon all your dreams will come true. But me? I will not read your fucking script. That is one of the greatest articles I've ever read for any kind of professional, whether you're a writer, a painter, sculptor, any kind of creator looking for advice. So I saw that many, many years ago. I'd met Josh at a few film functions, but uh, um, don't know the man, just admire his work. And so unbelievably adored the script for A History of Violence. And the script as much as the film, because when you read the script, you have to enumerate and create the pictures in your mind and the script. It just it just comes alive. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's one of the greatest reads and one of the most enjoyable reads ever. And I think I'm a very good screenwriter. I know I am. Yes, it's true. But um, that's a masterpiece. So over the years, when I've gotten somebody that wants me to read their script, and I really don't want to read it for any amount of money because I would consult for a fee. And if I liked them, I would help them develop their script and things like that from time to time, or at least coach coach them. But when somebody th literally throws it over the fence and stuff and asks you to read it for free, well, all you do is send that to them. And that is from an Academy Award nominee. But more often than not, they think you're being mean. But I do have a couple of great clients that I have that I started off with that, that came back and asked me to coach them. And had the staying power in the guts. So I just thought you'd enjoy that. I just wanted to read that aloud because it's so enjoyable. It's such a perfect letter. And um, I've attached it and sent it back to this young man. That is a true story. And I did get an email back from him saying, thanks for the advice. Maybe I'll speak to you about coaching. And I said, anytime. I don't do it much anymore. I'm pretty retired, but I hope you take the letter and the way it's meant and intended and best of luck. All of us in the arts, all of us, I shouldn't say all of us, maybe some of you are not in the arts. I'd say probably, probably 60% of the listeners through Google Analytics, where I can learn all this cool stuff about you, but no, I don't get your email or really your home address or anything like that. Although some of you have really amazing bedroom furniture. I got to say that you can see from the street. Um, I know that about 60% of you are in the arts or fancy being in the arts. Um, even if you paint, even if you just paint for fun or draw for fun or, you know, like the right or whatever. But um, I thought you'd enjoy that if you're interested in really committing to something and getting some real professional advice from Josh. So, you finally arrived. What the hell are you wearing? It's my ass-kicking outfit, bitch! Yes, it is that time. And, as far as an ass-kicking outfit, um, 
It's interesting that Jonathan Penaluna, the service manager at Porsche Center Brighton, who's a mate and looks after my car, Oscar, actually is more interested to know what an ass-kicking outfit really should look like. Well, today, I'm, I'm afraid I probably disappoint. I said in episode one or two that you should never work from home in anything but really being dressed up. But because we just had this new lockdown and because um, we've been driving around like mad and went to see my wife's son um, out in Whoop Whoop and been running around, I'm back. And yes, I'm in pajamas. You're not supposed to be professional in pajamas, but they're not just any pajamas. They're Peter Alexander pajamas. Perhaps you've heard of them. At age 24, Peter Alexander, did you know he decided it was time to be his own boss? And when his female friends were unable to find comfortable women's pajamas that weren't matronly, he decided to get into the pajama game. And working from his mom's dining room, Peter began making women's pajamas I'm not wearing women's pajamas, for Christ's sakes. But I'm giving a bit of history of the designer, as I always do. Began making women's pajamas, selling to department stores. When the phone rang to make the business seem bigger, Peter and his mom would pretend to be someone else. Well, eventually, a department store canceled an order for 2,000 pairs of pajamas, which would have crushed him. But Peter turned his biggest setback into an opportunity. He then put out a mail-order advertisement in a popular women's magazine, and of course, you know, people in women's magazines buy anything, and the response was overwhelming. He was flooded with 6,000 orders from one ad, and he hasn't looked back since. He was dubbed the Pajama King by the Australian media, and the nickname has stuck to him this day. He is originally from South Africa, is Jewish, and I have to say, he's gay. So I'm sitting here dressed in a gay South African Jewish man's clothing. And I am Jewish, but I am neither South African. I'm not South African nor gay, but that's okay. Celebrities began wearing his pajamas, such as Dame Edna, Delta Goodrum, Joanna Lumley, Jennifer Saunders, Kylie Minogue, Miranda Cure, Miranda Kerr. How do you say her name? I think it's Kerr. And Hugh Jackman. So I think it's more interesting. I think Miranda Kerr is more interested that I'm wearing these type of pajamas than I'm interested in her wearing them. So anyway, that is what I'm wearing. But as a bit of flash, not that his pajamas aren't flash. These are blue, powder blue, dark blue, and white striped. They they don't look like, you know, Auschwitz striped pajamas or anything like that. They look they're quite luxurious and I'm quite comfortable. Um, and I am wearing underwear. So, you know, it's a family show. Um, but I won't be when I go to bed. But that won't be on this because that's why we don't do video. But anyway, for a bit of flash, I am also wearing my Crystal Circa model Jacques-Marie Image glasses, which are absolutely one-off. And from the astonishing people at Armadale, 1.74. So, uh, and those pictures are in the show notes. So I hope I haven't set myself up for some fake news from... You know, Don Lemon at CNN, who will, uh, you know, out the podcast tomorrow and go, you know, podcaster Bobby Galinsky, the official Bobby Galinsky, outs himself as South African Jewish gay man, which, you know, he would just love. He'd be on the phone to me in 10 seconds. Oh, the risks we take. Speaking of CNN, you just talk about parallel worlds. You know, back on 9-11, when the Saudis you know, hijacked those planes and flew it into the Twin Towers and the Pentagon and everything, you know, 
is there anything worse? Is there anything that you know sticks in my mind and just the worst and worse? If in a parallel world it had happened differently and they hadn't flown into the Twin Towers, if they'd actually flown into CNN and the New York Times and the Washington Post, probably wouldn't be angry at the Saudis. Now, some of you that don't think that's good satire probably saying, oh, well, there's thousands and thousands of, you know, copywriters and clerks and advertising people and everything that work at CNN, the Post and the Times that are probably just really good people. Uh, no, that's like saying that, you know, the receptionists and everyone that were at Auschwitz and Treblinka and Bergen-Belsen and everything were, were just following orders that, you know, it was just a couple of the, the, bad, if, the bad Nazis, you know, you know, just following orders. No, if you work at CNN or the Post, or the Times, and you put out all that fake news over and over, ridiculous, you know, that in 24 to 48 to 72 hours is always debunked with a tiny apology. I mean, how can you even look at your family? How, how can you be proud? How can you say, what do you do for a living? Oh, I work at CNN. <laughs> really? Well, into that dinner conversation, hey, how are you? Good, yeah. Where are you headed? Uh, headed up in, in town on the train. Oh, yeah. Where do you get off? Uh, 51st. What do you do? Oh, I work at the New York Times. Well, that's the end of that conversation. Oh, it's good to be here in Washington. Yeah, ah, land of liberty, home of the brave, land of the free. What a beautiful city, all the monuments. So, oh, well, fewer monuments this week. But uh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a journalist, really? Oh, okay. Where do you work? Washington Post. Do you see what I mean? Do you see what I mean? Now, just a couple of shout-outs, as we always shout-out people who just are amazing people around the world and just astonishing for service. I just got to shout-out our folks up the street at Lady Green Restaurant. All the restaurants in Melbourne and many in Victoria now with this lockdown, which started at midnight on you know Wednesday night a couple of nights ago, are all shut again or doing takeaway only. So you know what? A lot of these aren't going to be around anymore. They're not. What if you ordered $100,000 worth of food to reopen and suddenly you were told you couldn't reopen and you can't return that food? Well, you got the picture. Lady Green is an amazing restaurant. They started uh, a couple years ago They're in an interesting location, but it's just right up the street. They're a little bit hard to see from the street. I've called them out before, but I've just had a few meals there and the service and the food, it's like a California kitchen, kind of Tex-Mex, beautiful, original, super astonishing menu and light and share, stuff like that. And um, I hope they're going to make it through. Um, so I'm hoping everybody in, you know, my area, Brighton, Elwood, St. Kilda, um, O, Hampton O, and places like that are going to support them. They are amazing. My dentist, dentist to the stars, Peter Frazier, who went out of his way in a busy week and fixed my tooth. I had a little bit of a chip on my tooth again. And Rachel at the dentist, receptionist to the stars, who is a new listener here. Kiko at Kokoro Sushi Bar in Brighton, who is one of the best ever. Now, I didn't go to Kiko, who's Japanese, and go, oh, you know what? I want you to apologize. I want you to apologize for Pearl Harbor. Like, what? She's probably about 20 years old. Why should she apologize for Pearl Harbor? Okay, then why should we apologize for people who were slave traders in the 1800s? 
or who might have taken Aboriginal land or here in Australia or Indian land in the U.S. in the 1800s. You know what? It happened. It's history. Fucking get over it. Okay. Ham-handed segue. Otherwise, you know, should I go to every Japanese restaurant and sushi bar in the world and say, hey, I want an apology for Pearl Harbor? How insane. But here's somebody to follow. Glenn Jameson. Glenn Jameson up in Canada. Way, way up in Canada. Glenn Jameson lives, well, if I can say it, 300 miles due north of Deadwood. Wow, what a series Deadwood was. I'll talk about that in in a couple of weeks. He lives west of Spy Hill. He doesn't even have an address. He has GPS coordinates. But what's very cool about Glenn is his Instagram is moonshiner1111. And you should follow that. I think you may have to ask him for an invitation and you may have to approve it. But he's an amazing photographer and shoots amazing photos. I never fail in my Instagram to look for his feed all, all the time. I've actually never met him. We know each other through Facebook. And in this world, there's part of me that thinks kill everyone on Facebook that is, is evil and Twitter and all of that. Just, you know, it's just, it gets a rage sometimes that that people can be so mean. Um, the new master chef here, which is one of the best shows, food, fashion, Three great judges, great contestants, cooking, everyone eats. It's universal. I'm not big on multiculturalism for some things because it doesn't always work in the economy in many places. It doesn't. It's proven. Don't argue it. But multiculturalism as a whole is a very good thing. People should be able to get along and blend and augment and be be special but retain their own retain their own identity. Well, the beautiful thing about MasterChef is the amazing multiculturalism. But the amount of hate I understand that the new Asian judge, Michelle Young, is getting from people is ridiculous. And why? Because she's Asian. You know, what is wrong with people? And part of that is because on social media, Facebook, Twitter, uh, you know, everything, is that there's anonymity, You don't have to give your name. So all these haters put on their, you know, fake name like you, Giorgio, you know, whatever. And uh, you should almost have to have a driver's license, some type of license to register to be on social media and give your real name. So that way you're accountable. Now, getting back to Glenn, we we met through Facebook. Um, I don't believe we've ever met in real life. And so many wonderful people I've met through digital media, through Facebook, through Instagram, through um, Twitter and things like that, that that's the beautiful part of social media. Like we are right here. A lot of you have come referred by Facebook but or Twitter or whatever. But uh, I think the time has come where a lot of these either need to be shut down or people need to be licensed to speak on them. The bad thing is, the good thing is they've given everyone a voice. But the bad thing is they've given everyone a voice. Some people shouldn't have a voice without accountability. Um, So Glenn, hope you're doing well up there in Canada, which is beautiful. Canada, by the way, found an amazing cure for the homeless. They call it winter. Solves everything. And to JP at Elwood Bathers, I was supposed to have Lunch with the King of Elwood in Elwood Bathers. We haven't had lunch together other than a Savage Club repartee um, in a long time. And of course, phew, lockdown closed. 
couldn't do it. And the amazing Maddie Tucker at Jackalope, which is a beautiful boutique hotel about an hour south of here in Red Hill. Amazing food, amazing hotel, and oh, service like you can't believe. And uh, we were supposed to go down there for lunch next week. Now we can't, and they have to close. Maddie, hope you guys do well. We'll see you in the future. Well, there's so much more I'd like to say. And I want to talk about, you know, important things like how if you're left-handed, you sneeze into your right elbow. If you're right-handed, you sneeze into your left elbow. If you're left-handed, you go to take your glasses off, you use your right hand and vice versa, things like that. And how in 1971 at Williams Village in Boulder, Colorado, at the University of Colorado, a friend and I pennied Albert Chang, one of our roommates in his room, and um, set it on fire. And it was on the 12th floor, and he opened the window. And I'll have to tell you what happened, but you're going to have to wait till next week. This didn't end very well, but it could have ended worse. And uh, next week, I'll also talk to you about something you married couples may have experienced, and that's um, kind of a shopping game. You go shopping, and do you, do you ever buy something and take it home and hide it from your wife or... You ladies out there, do you hide it from your husband or your partners or whatever? Uh, and uh, is it is it something that uh, you find is a bit of a sport or is it scary? Does it give you a thrill? Does it does it scare you? I mean, both my wife and I love fashion. We love to shop together, but um, occasionally we see something we want to bring home and maybe the don't want to tell the other one about until later. And you know, do you hide it in the closet? Do you hide it in the boot or trunk of the car. This this is a very special thing to discuss. will be a, a big feature next week. I got to thank the folks at Pitchfork for some of the cool information on the soundtracks and the accredited people that were also on there. And uh, really going to talk about an important issue next week. The AMC movie chain in the U.S. is suing the state of New Jersey that lockdowns are illegal and forcing them to allow them to reopening using constitutional rights that seizure of assets are illegal. This is a very, very big precedent that will be spilling into every business that wants to open and stay open or reopen rather than go broke and, and suing the state or the government. It's going to be huge. You heard it here first. I'll also be talking about Kanye West announcing his presidential bid, which um, is quite interesting and I think is a very good thing, but not for the reasons that you think, and Ghislaine Maxwell, who uh, is the flavor of the month, and all these videos that are going to come out, and uh, a couple of movie reviews, a couple of TV reviews. It's just going to be a huge, huge show for number 17. Dedico questo spettacolo alla memoria di alcune delle più belle e importanti musiche del mondo. Le Colone Sonore di Ennio Morricone. I am dedicating this show to the memory of some of the most beautiful and important music in the world, the soundtracks of Ennio Morricone. And they are important. And you know it's nice to be important. But it's so far more important to just be nice. Have an epic Biblical week. We'll see you next Friday.